Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying is I'm Peter Whittle. Now, throughout this pandemic, uh, many of us have been extremely, well, bewildered and disturbed by some of the images coming out of Australia and how Australia seemingly seems to have dealt with the pandemic. So I'm very pleased that today we have with us someone who knows Australia very well. She's indeed Australian. Helen Dale, who now lives in England, is an award-winning novelist, journalist, and indeed lawyer. Um, thank you very much for coming, Helen. Hello, uh, Peter. How are you? I'm very I'm, pleased to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. Um, before actually we go and talk about Australia, actually, Helen, I just wonder, we're recording this on uh, a Friday. This week they brought in these new restrictions, this Plan B thing. Mm. Will you be going along with Plan B? In a sense that it's not really difficult for me to yeah. go along with Plan B because I'm one of these people that's able to work from home and they haven't extended it to hospitality. Right. So you don't have the mask wearing or any of those yeah. kind of issues. So it's kind of, it's one of those, it's a theoretical question for me. Yeah. So whenever I've commented on COVID regulations of whatever sort, I've always had to be conscious of the fact that I am one of those people who throughout COVID has had a relatively easy life. Yeah. The only impost on me has been not being able to travel. The last time I went overseas was in January, February 2020, and my partner and I were actually in South Africa. Right, really. So, okay. uh, so we haven't travelled this year, and that has been annoying. Yeah. We booked a trip to Israel. We thought we would get a nice sunny holiday in Israel, and Israel shut the borders, and we had to cancel yeah. the trip that we were we were going to go to Israel. So, but where where sort of are you on the broad spectrum of opinion about all of this? I mean, you know, do you are you anti-vaccine passports, for example, or? You know, I mean, how, where do you sit on the line, as it were? When a lot of the restrictions first started coming in to the lockdowns and uh, uh, particularly the lockdowns, that's the thing I found particularly alarming, precisely because many people like me with my advantages mm. and yeah, being a professional member of the upper middle classes who could work from home, that kind of thing. I was acutely aware that I lived in this nice house in the countryside with a big mm. garden. Mm. And I saw people like me criticising, the one I really remember is criticising Londoners in tiny flats for going to the park and lying in the sun. Oh, I'm, yeah. So I'm what yeah. I found really alarming about the pandemic restrictions originally was the blindness of people who can have an easy life during lockdown. To, to those people who can't have an easy life. Yeah. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing is the opposition that I had to the rules that were developed around the management of the pandemic were not based on scientific arguments. And I think the lockdown skeptics of various sorts made a mistake when they tried to turn the debate into science against science. So you had the government scientists and you had the, the group of heterodox scientists say, but they all were scientists. And in some cases they would agree. I didn't enter into that apart from very occasionally getting really cross with journalists not being able to be numerate about things. So we get basic mathematical and statistical things wrong. I used to be a corporate solicitor and one area of the profession that does mean you know, lawyers have a reputation for working with words, which is fair enough. But one branch of the profession where you do actually have to be very numerate and good at doing calculations in your head and that kind of thing is corporate finance mm. and corporate law. Mm. That's where I used to work. And so I got very cross about that at times. And I did start to get news outlets writing to me saying, can you write a piece on epidemiology? And I would finish up having to say, I can comment on the maths because that's what I can do, but I can't comment on the biology or the genetics yeah. because I stopped doing biology at O-level. Mm. Um, I didn't even do an A-level in it. I did an A-level in maths. Mm. So it's mm. kind of consistent with someone who's, who's good at maths. Uh, 
So my opposition to it was the problem with the lack of parliamentary scrutiny, scrutiny and the attacks on civil liberties. Mm -hmm. And I spoke a number of times to a number of media outlets along those lines, yeah. but I would not venture into the science aspect of it because I'm a, what's known as an ethical pluralist. So I don't think it's possible to rank all values on a single scale. I think there are opposed sets of values that are equally valuable and the approach that you will take to ordering civil society will be based on how, on which sets of values right. you think are most important to you. And to me, as you would expect from someone who is a lawyer, who has worked for a parliamentarian in Australia with a strong commitment to civil liberties himself, uh, Senator Lionhelm, before he was elected to Parliament, one of the things he was known for, for example, was being a conscientious objector to the mm -hmm. Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So I was coming out of that tradition. Right. And so when I articulated criticism, it was based on civil liberties, not on science. I think it is possible both for someone who's very pro-science to reject a civil liberties argument because their, their, their value structure is different. And I also think that goes in the other direction. It's possible for someone who's got a strong commitment to civil liberties to reject a scientific argument on the basis that they think civil liberties are more important. And I don't think you can rank those two things on a common scale. It's not something that's amenable to trade-offs. It's interesting though that actually, I see, see your point, but what's interesting, at least in Britain, uh, I don't know if you've, you felt this, is that the sort of people who would usually be very keen to talk about civil liberties, mm. uh, like liberty itself, you know, are noticeable by their absence. They've almost said nothing about this. The, the, the people who seem to be most worried about civil liberties are people, broadly speaking, on the conservative side of things, you know, broadly speaking. But in fact, the, the people who generally talk about human rights and about civil liberties have been noticeable by their absence. I think part of that is to do with the fact that a lot of contemporary human rights organisations they do human rights, they don't do civil liberties, those yeah. things are not the same. And the reason they're not the same, is it comes back to the point about moral ranking. When I talked about being an ethical pluralist, I am drawing on ideas developed by Isaiah Berlin. And Isaiah Berlin was the one who pointed out that there are different forms of liberty. And the Tories who have been in favour of civil, li civil liberties, yeah, assembly and, and speech and so on and so forth, are making arguments in favour of negative liberties, which are the traditional removal of restraint style of liberties. Whereas the human rights organisations have been, I believe, compromised by a belief in positive liberties. So yeah, you get yeah. a right to health care or a right to uh, self, you get self-expression rights, like to go on a pride march or so on and so yeah. forth. So it's not just the negative right that homosexuality, for example, should be decriminalized. It's a positive right to express it in public as well. Yeah. And I actually think in many respects, human rights and civil liberties, because so much of the human rights space has been colonized by positive rights that really are you can have this, you can have that, you should have these things. That uh, You finish up with them being, and Isaiah Berlin actually, when he wrote his original famous essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, he said that these two are gonna come into conflict. Mm -hmm. If you have too many of the positive rights, they're going to come into conflict. Mm -hmm. Because in order for people to say, have a human right to healthcare, you finish up starting to instruct people to yeah, live in a particular yeah. way. And we're familiar with this historically because mm -hmm. of you know, the anti-smoking and anti-obesity and sugar tax and that kind of thing. And that just looks silly and trivial and so on and so forth. But you can, it's quite possible to ramp that up significantly. So you finish up with things like lockdowns and then at the, at, at the extreme compulsory medical procedures, which is, well, what we're possibly facing. Yeah, compulsory vaccination, which is what you've yeah. started to see in European countries and certainly in China, the yeah. more authoritarian countries. Yeah. Authoritarian countries. Right, now, I've never been to Australia. I should add, by the way, as you've mentioned, you live here, don't you? Mm. You moved here in... Well, I've been back and forth between Australia right. and the UK since I was four. Right. Mm. So I'm a dual national. My father was Scottish, my mother was Irish. Um, I was born in Australia but I have always had lifelong connections in both directions. Right. Right. 
uh, I, I went to university in Australia, I did my classics degree there, but I also went to university here. I, I did my law degree at Oxford. So I, I am as deeply rooted in both cases as it is possible to be. Right. Um, well, therefore, your perspective will be particularly important to us. Uh, I look out, having never been to Australia, but I have an image of it. Uh, of being well, one of rugged individualism um, and also no nonsense. I, these are possible cliches that have gone with the same way as they met in average. I don't know. Mm. But it has been so surprising of all countries to see the kind of things that seem to have been happening, well, with civil liberties and the police or whatever in Australia. Now, it, does it surprise you at all? I mean, am I wrong to feel this? Or do you see that actually this is exactly the way Australia would deal with this? It's possible to be surprised by some aspects of the Australian response, but not by very many of them. Australia is a very distinctive polity. It has a very unusual approach to politics and a very unusual approach to civil society and to governance. That doesn't mean that it's so weird that it's more like China than Britain. It is obviously more like Britain and it's not just the English language, but it is a very unusual country. And to be fair, many Australians, even when they first go overseas, don't realize how different their country is until they've spent quite a bit of time over overseas. I mean, I started to experience it as a teenager. I realised actually other countries are very different from Australia. They do things very, very differently. They value different things. I wrote a long piece at the end of 2020 for Standpoint magazine, which was both praising some Australian qualities, but also provide an attempt to provide a warning to people. And so I was saying to those Americans who want to copy Australia's gun laws or to those British people who want to copy Australia's immigration policy or to many countries all over the world that want to copy the Australian healthcare system. All of these things are good things. They have, you know, the, the country is extremely well governed and it's also a shock to the system if you've come out of a particular political tradition that says, for example, oh, you can't centrally plan an immigration policy. Well, Australia can and does and has done since 1991, and it's the most successful immigration policy in the world. So you can take your Hayek and his knowledge problem and you can stick it where the sun don't shine, to, yeah, to yeah, use an Australian yeah. expression. Yes, Australians are no nonsense. They will be like that. So it's a very unideological approach to governance, but it's not that third wayism of Tony Blair. It is just this brutal kind of pragmatism. The poet A.D. Hope described it as the people who live in Australia are the people who will inhabit the dying earth. You know, they are the last people who will be alive, basically. Everyone else will have died, but the Australians will still be there because yeah. they're survivors. Along with Cher, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good, I'll pay that one. Okay. So these are good things. You can have that idea in your head if you're Joe Biden and you're horrified about school shooters, if you're Pretty Patel and you're horrified about migrants uh, coming across in the channel in small boats, uh, if you're horrified about both the NHS and the American healthcare system. You could, you could look at the Aussie thing and say, these are good things to have, but there's a price to pay. If you want those good things, you may have to, and this is the warning I tried to sound in my standpoint piece, which is available for free. You can just go on their website and search my name I and you'll find the article. Says, yeah. yeah, It's called Emulate Australia, question mark. And you may have to give up things that you find in your own culture in order to do the things that Australia does that you find very precious. And I have tried to warn people, to, to get this across to people without criticising Australia's remarkable achievements, but also to point across, point out to them that it is a very distinctive country with a very distinctive culture. And there are some things you would have to do, for, for example, the, the American electoral system would have to be completely replaced and rebuilt from the ground up probably with Australian advisors mm -hmm. in order to reproduce some of the qualities that the likes of Barack, across the spectrum, everyone from, you had Barack Obama praising the healthcare system, you had Donald Trump praising the immigration system, you've got Joe Biden praising the gun laws. Mm -hmm. So 
for example, in Australia, voting is compulsory. Civic edu education is compulsory. It uses compulsory preferential, what the Americans call instant runoff and what here is called the alternative vote, but it's yeah, compulsory yeah. alternative vote. You have to number all the boxes um, and you, everyone is compelled to the polls. If you don't go to the polls, you are fined. Uh, so it drags the Australian political system to the centre. Yeah. And I don't mean centre in the terms of boring centrist. I mean centre in that you cannot produce a situation where, for example, working class voters who are hostile to immigration, as we saw in the Brexit vote here, are just systematically ignored. Because if you do that in Australia, it will rip the base out from underneath of one of the political, major yeah, political yeah. parties. So that, in many respects, the Aussie system has roots in compulsory voting. Not only is it compulsory voting, Redistribution, you know, all the fights in America over redistricting and the, you finish up with electoral systems that are sort of roughly shaped like a spiral or a mm. banana to try and get all the Democrats in one seat and mm. all the Republicans in another. And there's trade-offs between the two. Both parties are equally guilty of this. They're all impartially decided in Australia, basically by algorithm. And before every election, you finish up with the same number of people and the, any kind of electoral apportionment is structured in such a way that it is impossible to favour one side or another. Mm. It's impossible to have a gerrymander at the federal level. It used to be possible at the state level. I, I experienced this growing up in Queensland, but it is no longer. You tell an American, by the way, all the horse trading over congressional districts, mm -hmm. give it up. You have to give it up. Mm -hmm. All your voting laws, that you have about you know whether it's voter ID or getting people out to vote or so on and so forth, you have to give them all up. You have to have compulsory registration. You know, the Electoral Commission comes around to Australian high schools and registers all the students when they're 16 and 17. So that as soon as they turn 18, they're flagged as a voter. Mm. So it involves thinking about politics and that's just one tiny area there are many, many other areas as well. And you notice it's based on compulsion. Mm. Australia doesn't have a pensions crisis. Nearly every other Western developed country does. Yep. It has a system known as superannuation. It has had it since 1991, mm. compulsory saving when you work. Right. But do you see the compulsion again? Yep. It's this, yep. Australians work out a good way to do something and they think, oh, everybody should have that, but people are too stupid to necessarily choose that, so we'll choose for them. So it's a form of forced choosing. This is profoundly, profoundly different from any other political tradition. And if you look at the Australian constitutional debates, which I acknowledge many Australians are not familiar with the 19th century constitutional debates, but lawyers typically are, I mean, I was taught them. You, know, you, you learn about them, you, you study constitutional yeah, law in yeah. Australia because it has a written entrenched constitutional document like the Americans do with no human rights in it. And there you go. The only state in Australia with entrenched human rights in a form that would make sense to either an American or to someone from the European Union with the ECHR is Victoria. And that has been the state with the worst human rights abuses or the worst civil liberties abuses. Don't correct myself there because human rights and civil liberties are in certain respects contraindicated. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it is probably only possible to guarantee civil liberties. I'm not sure you can guarantee human rights. And I'm put in mind of um, some comments made by my jurisprudence tutor at Oxford, he was Professor John Gardner. And he said, Universal health care is a good thing to have. Don't pretend that it's not. But also, is it a right? Mm -hmm. Are you tr elevating to the status of yeah. rights mm -hmm. things that are simply good things to have? And that has been why you've had your human rights organisations basically looking everywhere and looking under their armpit mm -hmm. and, and not doing anything in the face of, say, lockdowns. That's the, the most obvious thing. I think is, is it, that's fascinating. This compulsion culture. Mm. Uh, it sort of sort of goes hand in hand with conformity, maybe, does it? I, you know, uh, in a way. I, I'm just wondering, because when you see, for example, and I know it's different to, to, when you go to different territories in Australia, but when you see the way that the police behave, for example, um, and it seems to have public backing on the whole, mm. 
does it not? I mean, despite the demonstration. Is that an expression of what you're, what you're talking about? Australian policing is distinctively authoritarian. Uh, the police in Australia are closer to the gendarmerie in France yeah, yeah, yeah. than they are to the Bobby on the Beat here. Yeah. Uh, I think that is an obvious thing to say, and I've attempted to explain this previously to, to other media outlets, and I shall try here. There has been a long history in Australia of very authoritarian policing, going back before Federation. Federation was when all the states joined yeah. together to become mm -hmm. the one country in 1901. But before that, there was the state of Queen, colony of Queensland, the colony of New South Wales, colony of South Australia, and so on. And colony of Van Diemen's Land, which then became Tasmania, that kind of thing. There has been a long history of very authoritarian policing, and there were even things that you tend to associate with uh, South America now, like really quite nasty f conflicts between civil society and the police, and something that almost appro approached what we would consider to be a military coup. Yeah. If you look at what happened to Governor Bly, yeah. yes, Bly as in mutiny on the bounty. I'm not going to go into all the history here, but it's well worth doing. Just sit on, go to Wikipedia or something like right, that and, right. and look up what happened to Governor Bly and you will see the very famous picture of the New South Wales Corps because Governor Bly hid under his bed in the governor's mansion, being hauled out from under his bed by members of the the New South Wales Corps in an incident known as the Rum Rebellion, right. where rum had become a currency in the colony. So this very authoritarian policing has deep roots and the, the funny line that is being used, misattributed to Clive James, he didn't actually say it, but I, it is generally acknowledged that Peter Houston offset a version of it, but I have heard it ever since I was a little girl, is you know, from my dad, is always remember that Australians are not only the descendants of convicts, they're also the descendants of their jailers. So this long history of very authoritarian policing and sometimes too, I experienced this as a, as a girl growing up in Queensland, a very corrupt policing. Yeah, lots and lots of brown paper bags, right, right. lots and lots of uh, money changing hands and uh, you know, association and corruption in the context of prostitution and gambling. One of the reasons why Australia was one of the first countries in the world to go down the path of decriminalisation with prostitution was precisely to take it out of the hands of the police yes, because yes. the police were as bent as bobby yes. pins. And you can get, you can once again read it on the internet, but it goes back to the 70s and 80s. You can read the report of the Wood Royal Commission into the New South Wales police force, which was famously and notoriously described as a joke as the best police force that money could buy because of this this cultural tradition. Now, it is generally acknowledged that the most authoritarian police force in Australia now is Victoria Police. And it took over from the Queensland Police, who were, the mo who were cleaned up, you know, less authoritarian now. And that is why the worst stuff you've seen in terms of reporting over here, and the, including the incident with the rubber bullets, mm. uh, has occurred in, in Victoria. Mm. In the context of the COVID pandemic, Victoria has also had the worst outcomes of any Australian state and, and the longest lockdowns. Mm. It's so extreme that Victoria at one point had something like 230 odd days of continuous lockdown, yep. while Queensland had had three days in total. Mm. So there are huge variations mm. between the individual states because that's another thing. I don't know whether you have any American viewers like, yeah, like yeah. people, so Americans will get this better than British people who are a unitary state. Australia is a federal system and there is considerable divergence yes. between the states. Yes. So you could have a state in Australia, South Australia was like this, for example, that was kind of like Florida and nothing was locked down and it was very liberal and so on and so forth. And then you could have a state like Victoria where the capital city, Melbourne, actually had the longest period of continuous lockdown mm -hmm. in the developed world. Mm -hmm. And those states abut each other. Victoria and South Australia share a border. So it gives you an idea mm -hmm. within one country, you can get this incredible divergence. But just for if you're an American, imagine if Florida and California yeah, yeah. were next to each other rather than separated by a continent. Exactly. Or, or New York, in, indeed, mm. the big cities are much more. It's also the Nor Northern Territory as well. That's pretty harsh, isn't it, when it comes to... It hasn't 
Now, the thing is... Where does confinement come, sorry? Oh, the thing in, in the Northern Territory is it's territory, not a state. So constitutionally, it has less power over its own affairs than the states do. And this is worked out, this arrangement is worked yeah. out in the constitutions of the Northern Territory and the Australian Capital Territory, other two territories. The main thing in terms of representation is they only get two senators each, right. whereas the other states get 12 each in the parliament, in the federal parliament. Is that down to population? It's a mainly population, but there are a few mm. other little indicia as well, which I won't go into because they'll just bore you. But so the Northern Territory, the main claim to fame of the Northern Territory is that it has the largest, as a proportion of the state's population, number of Aboriginal people who are the Indigenous people of Australia. And they are very, very distinctive. Aborigines are really, really distinctive. Even in the context of forager civilizations all over the world, Aborigines are really, really unusual. It's generally acknowledged that they've been in Australia for about 40,000 years, give mm -hmm. or take. Um, the culture is very unusual. It's not unified. They speak many different languages. They're not like the Maori in New Zealand. When the British went to New Zealand, they discovered the Maori. One of the reasons why the Maori provided such an effective resistance during the Maori Wars is they all spoke the same language. It was all mutually intelligible and they were very, very organized. Aborigines, they're like hundreds of languages, all these small tribal groups in a very harsh environment. And so what the Northern Territory has done, and I'm not going to excuse it here because I think that there has been overreach. And the young woman who was interviewed on yeah. Unheard, who was basically locked up because she told a lie. So she was effectively imprisoned mm. without a trial. Yeah, that's mm. egregious. She mm. was The expression that's used in Australia is that she was verbaled by the police here, so painted into oh, a corner yeah. and, and finished up being locked up in Howard Springs. That's egregious. You can't excuse that. But the panic in the Northern Territory is born of the terrible fear that if coronavirus gets into the remote Aboriginal communities, it will have a catastrophic effect. And I probably need to explain a little bit of genetics here. Many educated Americans and British people are familiar with the Columbian Exchange, mm. which the shorthand is we gave the Native Americans, both North and South America, uh, smallpox and they gave us syphilis. This was not a good experience for people on either side. But uh, while syphilis makes you very sick, uh, smallpox kills you. And mm. so it had an awful effect on those populations. However, colds and flu, coronavirus and influenza were already endemic in those populations. When European colonists went to Australia, not only did the Aborigines have no experience of smallpox, there was no colds or flu there either. And often you get people ask, why didn't the Aborigines resist so effectively? The Maori nearly beat Whitey, you know, in New Zealand. And a big part of the reason, it's not the only part, I mean, the, the fact that they didn't speak mutually intelligible languages is part of this mm. as well. But a big part of it is because all the battles against the Aborigines weren't won by the colonists. They were won by general coronavirus and general influenza. Mm. And that memory is very strong in the Aboriginal communities. It was then repeated in 1918 and 1919. The Aboriginal people, their populations had just started to recover from settlement, basically. This is what happens when half of you get wiped out. Uh, and then they were flattened again by Spanish flu. And that is seared into the country's memory. It was a disaster. And whilst there was a lot of racism in Australia in 1918, as there was in lots of other countries, nobody on any side of politics or out of any particular background wanted to see the Aboriginal people die out. So Australians were horrified at what Spanish flu did to the mm. Aboriginal populations. So that panicked and very authoritarian response in the Northern Territory is a combination of the country's political history and policing history. Right. That is an element of that. That is true, as I was describing earlier. But it's also terrible, panicked fear that once again, the colonial, the original colonial power will screw it up when it comes to the indigenous population and lead 
finish up with vast numbers of them dying. Because even though modern Aborigines are the descendants of people who survived colds and flu, they've only got 230 years of that. Mm-hmm. They don't have thousands upon thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands of years like Europeans and East Asians do, who are the majority of the rest of the Aussie population, in terms of building up genetic resistance Mm. and biological resistance to colds and flu. So if you understand all of that, I mean, extremely vivid uh, portrayal of 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 the background, then I suppose it means you are quite understanding as to why Australia has reacted the way it has. I understand it, but I see why it's alarming. Does that make sense? Yeah. I completely understand. I mean, and I see why that video, the interview with the young woman who's originally from Victoria and moved to another part of the country to get away from Victoria's long lockdowns. And she was in Melbourne, which was where they were very bad. I completely understand why someone would do that and her alarm and distress. I mean, I saw as a as a young woman uh, and as a teenager, the behavior of the Queensland police and they astonishingly authoritarian mm-hmm. behavior. I've had the experience of being arrested on, a legal pr- on an illegal pride march. It was not fun. Mm-hmm. I'll just leave yeah, it there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I mean, what happened to you? Well, basically everybody was arrested and we were all strip searched. Right. Yeah, okay. they don't, they, this is in the days of Joe Bjorki-Peterson when he was the premier. He was a shocker for this, yeah. you know, very, very authoritarian government. Queensland, uh, yeah, the, the chant that people, uh, when I was a girl, would, would be Queensland police state demand the right to demonstrate. Queensland police state demand the right to demonstrate. Because at yeah. one point there was legislation that if you gathered in more than a group of three, uh, the police could come and break you up. Really? And th- there was this awful, awful joke that went around at about that time that if you got three Victorians together, they'd talk about the football. Uh, if you got uh, three South Australians together, they would form a modern family because they had a gay premier at the time. This is what I mean about state differences. <laughs> yes. If you got three Tasmanians together, they were all related. Um, uh, if you got three West Australians together, you'd have an international business corporation because of all the iron ore. And the, the jokes about, yeah, and there were jokes about the other states, but the ones for the Northern Territory and Queensland were vicious. If you get three Queenslanders together, they'll get arrested. And if you get three Northern Territorians together, they'll blame it on the bloody dingo. <laughs> and, and I think even here, people will get the dingo joke. Yeah. yeah that, these are the, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a shorthand way of describing the differences between yeah. the states. Um, so I understand where the Northern Territory government is coming from, but I still find it alarming. And it is a shock to foreigners who've had this idea in their head, including for part of the pandemic, where basically hardly anyone in Australia died. And even by comparison with the rest of the world, probably Australia has had the most successful pandemic response. Even Victoria, the worst performing Australian state, is substantially better than nearly everybody else in in the world. And other states were like one person's died, all that kind of thing. And so people can look at this country and go, gee, it's well run. Isn't it nice? Isn't it clean? People go there and think, oh, it's so clean. It's so nice and everything works and so on and so forth. But there is that the price you pay for getting all the trains to run on time is this very orderly, form-filling, compliant, um, not so much compliant as conformist. Uh, There is an Australian expression that has got, there are several of them that have gone global. I've I've talked, yeah, I finished up talking on one outlet about dead cats, you know, plan B is to distract from Boris's flat and from parties in number 10 amongst the great and the good. And so they've introduced plan B and the Australian joke is, plan B is the dead cat you throw on the table. It's to stop people talking about the embarrassing thing to the government so that they can say, uh, because everyone's running around like a mad thing going, look, there's a dead cat on the table. Now that's from Australian politics. Now, That's one hell of a dead cat. If oh, it's that is a the huge case. dead cat. Yes, it's a main coon. It takes up the whole table. It's massive. <laughs> now, the other expression that started in Australia but has now become global, I think even Americans will have heard of this, is the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. 
Now, this is an immense part of Australian culture and the Japanese translation of it is, I actually think, more vivid. The nail that sticks up gets hammered down flat. Right, is yes. the way it will be translated yeah. into Japanese. Because Japan has elements of this as well, but it's expressed in the context of uh, East Asian, Confucian, Buddhist, Shinto culture rather than a broadly liberal, democratic, Christian, Jewish kind of little bit of Muslim culture in Australia. And the tall poppy syndrome explained is the country, it's not socialist. Nobody has any issue with you making lots of money in Australia, having a very good life. If you're very clever or entrepreneurial or very talented, knock yourself out, make a fortune. Australia has no issue with that. So it's not socialist kind of envy, politics of envy. It's not like that. The tall poppy syndrome is if you have a special talent or trait or skill, you can make a lot of money out of it and get a lot of respect, but you can't demand respect and you can't demand that you be treated better or be given more chances or mm, more deference mm, mm. on the basis of your talent or skill. Mm. Now, this will make more sense to British people, and I'm sorry, I don't have a good example for Americans. You'll have to look it up. But you may, if you're British and we're playing an, you're playing an Ashes series against Australia at the moment, remember the sandpaper incident mm -hmm. with tam ball tampering by members of the Australian cricket team, including the then captain at the time, Steve Smith, one of the one of probably the best batsmen in the world still. He's just fantastically mm -hmm. gifted. Um, nobody in Australia had any issue with Steve Smith being fantastic, making lots of money, getting huge kudos for being uh, gifted at his sport and for being captain of the cricket team, which is just like massive. If you're Canadian, like it's like being the captain of the Maple Leafs. It's just mm, mm, huge. Um, but as soon as he arrogated to himself the right to behave in a way that was not an expression of his talent, but rather I am the skipper of the team, therefore I will bend the rules. It created an enormous outburst and outrage and anger in Australia because that is and that is the tall poppy syndrome coming into effect. Yeah, I think I mean, you th here you see, uh, Helen, it's a slightly I think the meaning was always slightly different. It might have changed, but it was because Thatcher used to use it, you know, as well. It's essentially that if you look like you had particular initiative and not necessarily just talent, actually, mm. but you wanted to get on then there was resentment amongst other people. Who do you think you are? Mm. It, it didn't require you to do anything, like to do that tampering with the, the board and everything. It was actually much more, if you were kind of like, I'm going to make something of myself, and you to, then somehow people would start to get jealous. You know, like the socialism is the politics of envy kind mm. of argument. Australia doesn't really have that politics of envy. What it has is the tall poppy syndrome. Remember the... In the Brexit context of the Brexit debate, this happened a little bit in the United mm. States with Trump as well, where a lot of people who were quite well educated, who'd been to good universities and so on and so forth, were saying extraordinary things like these people vote. These people shouldn't vote. Yeah, these people yeah, are too stupid yeah. to vote. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. Anybody with any sort of career in public life in Australia who said that in the response to an electoral result of any sort, and remember Australia uses referendums because that's the only way you can change the constitution, that would be the end. They would be out of public life. Right. You cannot, that is, and that is also the operation of the tall poppy syndrome. You can't arrogate to yourself because you're very clever or you went to Oxford or Cambridge or, or whatever. Right. The ability to say, I'm smarter than you, therefore I get to tell you what to do. Mm, mm. This is so bad, it's probably a little less than it was, but only a little bit because I've got friends with teenage children who describe th this phenomenon. If you are very clever at an Australian school and you then on the basis of your cleverness attempt to tell other people what to do, if you are a boy, 
100 out of 100%, you will get the snot flogged out of you in the playground. Yeah. If you are a girl and you know that girls are less violent, you're likely to still stand a, probably a good one in two chance yeah. of somebody going whack uh, yeah, yeah. around your face. Don't you dare sit down. Yeah. So that's the way the tall poppy mm. syndrome operates in right. Australia. And it, it is, and that is quite close to what you're, you, when you're quoting yeah. from Thatcher, is quite close to the how very dare you get above yourself. Yeah. But yeah. if you're very clever and you go on and you make lots of money, problem with that. I made stacks of money out of my first book and I got some envy from other writers who didn't have a bestseller, but it wasn't particularly nasty envy. The controversy over my first novel was all over your sort of cultural appropriation and that kind of That's thing. Right. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't how very dare you write a bestseller. You know, nobody cared about that. This is the hand that signed the paper, yeah, isn't it? My the first hand novel. that signed the paper. And yeah, the, just briefly, can you explain to people who don't know, but there, it was a real literary cause celeb wasn't it well yes yeah, so and what i did is i it, it's a proper there's a i wrote a feature uh, because there was a 20th anniversary edition that came out a few years ago that you can still get off of amazon or at waterstones or blackwells or whatever you got no problem getting it there uh, and i wrote an essay and the long story short is and i have no problem with appending the word lobby to their name uh, i irritated a lot of jewish people so i had a big public fight with the jewish lobby right and I was accused of everything, one of which, part of which was racism, but some of it was cultural appropriation and all of these things that you associate with wokery now, but it happened in 1995. The net effect of that big controversy over my first book uh, was to make it into an enormous bestseller. This is a difference. Now when this happens, pe people's books, it often happens before the book is published. And so the person doesn't make any money and they just have a dreadful controversy and they get nothing out of it. But it was really unpleasant. And why, uh, why was it cultural appropriation? What, it, you, what, what was the, the, the main beef then? In that case? Two things. One, I used a pen name and pretended to be from an ethnic group of which I'm not. Oh, right, and okay. two, I told somebody else's story, the standard con cultural appropriation argument. Uh, honestly, read the essay, which is about 2000 words long, buy the book, but you can get the essay. I wrote it for The Australian, which is paywalled. So it was republished by arrangement with the newspaper in Quillette. So if you just search my name, you will find it in Quillette and you will just be able to read it and read the full story there. And you, you went on to win Australia's biggest literary prize, isn't it? I won the, yeah, that book won the Miles Franklin Award, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker Prize or the Pulitzer yeah. Prize. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you prefer, being a lawyer or writing? You're not practicing that much at the moment, are you? Legally I, I've what? got one consultancy job on the go at the moment, right. uh, but all the other work I'm doing is is writing. Yeah. Uh, I've tended to split between consult, legal consulting and writing. I gave up full-time practice in sort of mid-2016. mid, mid yeah. And uh, I like writing on the back of my legal knowledge. So right. that's the kind of writing I really like doing. I am a, what they call, Americans have slightly different systems here. I'm what they call a senior writer at Law and Liberty, oh, which yeah. is a legally focused magazine. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's published by Liberty Fund, which is a very distinguished American legally, legal and economically focused nonprofit. And I write for them once a month, and I, it's nearly always a law article that I do well, for them. Law and Liberty. Law, law and, and Liberty, Liberty is the magazine, and it's owned by Liberty Fund, which is a big right. non-profit. Uh, because before this, you, you, you told me you had one coming out this week, uh, which I read, which was about, it was a review, was it not, of Ian Hershey Ali's book, mm. um, in, re in particular relation to the Australian immigration system, which, yes. which she thinks is a good one. Right. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Whilst there are places in, and I say this in my piece, and Law and Liberty is not paywalled, so if people want to go to the website and just click on my name, the, that article of mine will probably still be on yeah. the front page somewhere. And you can just go through my whole author archive going back over several years now. What, whilst she occasionally quotes Australian Prime Ministers, I think she quotes uh, John Howard in there at one point, and Paul Keating at one point, and various other little bits of information, because her focus is on Europe and to a lesser extent the US, which is fair enough, they're much bigger markets, Australia has a small population. What she finishes up doing 
without being really obvious about it, is advocating the Australian immigration system to other countries. Right. So when she, at the end of Prey, Hersey Ali goes through and sets out, this is how you fix this, all the problems I've identified in, in, in the book. And you read the rest of the book for the issues with your correlation between um, Muslim immigrants from countries that tolerate polygamy and high crime rates. That's probably the biggest, strongest point that she makes with the best documentation. And I go through this in my piece, but the book is well worth a read. And she, once she's made her statistical case, she then goes on and makes policy recommendations. And all the policy recommendations that she makes, only once does she quote one of the Aussie prime ministers, but all the policy recommendations that she makes are ones that are absolutely standard in Australia and have been since 1991, right. when the points-based immigration system was introduced. Oh, I see. Uh it's funny because the Australian style point system, everyone used to talk about it all the time here during mm. Brexit, you know, mm. uh, without really knowing what it what it was, you know. Mm. In fact, a lot of people said, well, actually, the Australian style point system wouldn't really work very well for Britain, actually. Um, but it was like always put up as being this is exactly what we should have. I don't think people really know what we've got now. I think some people think we have got that. Now. No, well, it's start, you're starting to do it, but the problem you've got here, and now we're getting back to the, the very odd Australian history, and that combines both authoritarianism and exceptional competence in terms of governance. And the, there's an expression that economic historians use to describe this, and I'm thinking of people like Mark Koyama, who used to be at Oxford, and is now at the Hoover Institution. And uh, Koyama talks about high state capacity, which is, am I allowed to swear on here? Of course you are. Uh, okay. <laughs> the best way to define high state capacity is it is a government, a state, that independently of anything the private sector does can get shit done yeah. and get it done to a high standard, which is why... For many years, you had The Economist, for example, talking about, oh, it's not possible to have a centrally planned immigration system. And it, this became so egregious that eventually, I think it was Keating, it might, it might have been somebody else, but I'm pretty sure it was Paul Keating, actually wrote a letter to The Economist and said, can you stop saying this? We've had it since 1991 and we have the best immigration system in the world. And both those comments are true. Um, but... Points-based immigration came up constantly in British focus groups. I'm aware of this from oh, friends absolutely. of the Tory party. And yeah. not just Tory friends, my Labour friends, they yes. say the same thing as well. Yeah. And it's one of those things, it is a good thing. It clearly works. All of the issues with immigration that happen in other polities, including in the European Union, just don't arise in Australia, don't really arise in New Zealand either, which has copied the system, and don't particularly arise in Canada either because it also has a very similar system. Yeah. And you could, the Canadian one, if anything, is a bit more obvious. Uh, it, uh, when, for example, the Syrian civil war was really bad, Canada was praised all around the world for taking 12,000 Syrian refugees, which was more than any other country. And then you looked at the fine print. Must be unaccompanied females married with kids. Really, that's fascinating. Which, by, which uh, ties yeah, into yeah. Hersey Alley's point yes. about the problem of young males yeah. from countries where polygamy is normal yeah. and they are unattached. So it was literally Canada, and Australia does this all the time as well. It's just the Canadian one was widely reported because it was such a big number. And you just knew, if because it too has a points-based immigration system, it, you just looked at it and you went, ah, yeah. Canada and Australia, cherry picking, yes, taking the yes. ones, the desirable ones off the top and leaving the dross. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is just, this is deeply, deeply Australian and Canadian and Kiwi. This is just something that the three countries do. Um, and one thing before we wrap up, can you, can you actually go to Australia, you know, yourself? I can now you because can. I'm an Australian citizen. I'm actually, I'm a dual national and I'm fully vaccinated. But it's an entirely legitimate question to ask because there was a long period of time when 
Australian citizens, regardless of their vaccination status, could not actually go back to Australia. And it became a matter of enormous public controversy because one of the things that's part of the Australian immigration system, and this is an ancient thing that Australia copies, has copied from something that existed in pagan Rome, is the status of a citizen is very strongly elevated right. over the status of non-citizens or permanent residents or, or anybody else who might be living in Australia. And the fact that everybody was being barred from going back to Australia, including citizens, really caused a lot of stink. It made a lot of people across the political spectrum, left, right, up, right. down, doesn't matter, made them very, very angry. And the expression that was used continually by people in debates about this was Australian citizenship Australian citizenship means something. Yeah. It is supposed to mean something. Our system is set up so that it means something. This is inconsistent with the Australian conception of citizenship. And you would even start to get, and this is just about the worst thing you can be accused of in Australia, you started to get comments about this is un-Australian. And if people start running that this is un-Australian line, you just know. Oh, this is going to be really bad and there's going to be a nasty public debate about it. <laughs> well, I, I have to say it would be rather nice in Britain if we did uh, a lot a little bit more importance to our own uh, British, British citizenship, I think, as well, really. It, it seems to be very disposable now. But, Helen, thank you very, very much. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. No, it's a pleasure. And again, I hope, you know, maybe next year, you know, when we get over. Thanks very much. Not a problem. Um, that's it for this time. We shall see you next week. And uh, thank you very much for watching. So what you're saying is thank you. Bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as three pounds per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.